So we're, we're in the series. We're rounding off, as we've said, this Apostles' Creed series. There are three sort of stanzas to it, right? There's this first part about God the Father, the second part about God the Son, and then the last part about the Spirit and his activity with his people. So it's, it's, it's crafted around this sort of Trinitarian uh, literary form. And we're, we're, we're nearing the end of the longest section, which is about what we believe about in Jesus uh, who he is, and so we'll have two more uh, stanzas in that, and then we'll move into this, the, the third and last part of it. But tonight's is this idea of that after Jesus' uh, uh, burial and resurrection, and then this period of 40 days, remember we're told that he, he stays and, and he teaches the disciples and these many followers about the kingdom of God, and he's connecting dots for them that, that they just didn't get, prior to that. Um, and then we're, we, we read in scripture, which we'll read in a couple seconds here, that he ascended into heaven, and we're told as in the Apostles' Creed, he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Now let me just say one word about just kind of the right hand piece, because this is, most of us kind of have this idea, but, but the whole concept of sitting at someone's right hand goes all the way back to when warriors would, would carry a shield on their left hand and some sort of offensive weapon, maybe a mace or a sword or lance or something in their right hand, which, which left them um, uniquely vulnerable on their right hand side, right? Because you don't, you don't have a shield. And so what they would do is they would always, the, especially if it was a king or a chieftain, is he would, he would find his best soldier, his most trusted soldier, and he would have him fight to his right. Okay, you with me on that? And so this custom develops just from that, that for instance, a king would have his most trusted advisor sitting at his throne, at the right of his, of his throne. Or it even looks like at, at meal times, sometimes the host, whoever was sitting at the right hand of the host, it was, it was just a place of, it was a place of honor. Sometimes it was a, it was a place of shared rule. And it's a very ancient concept, but that's kind of what's being meant by the right hand. It's not, you know, God the Father does not have a body, so he does not have hands, right? So it's not a literal, you know, let's see, he's to the right of me and I'm to the left of, you know, it's not that. It's communicating something about the prestige and the place of who Jesus is right now. I remember... Um, as I was first being introduced to the stories of Jesus and growing up, I always remember thinking about the ascension of Jesus as sort of like weird. Um, it was, you know, is it like an alien abduction? Because remember, they, you know, he just sort of like, he seems to go up, and is that what it's about? Um, it kind of felt a little bit like a postscript to Holy Week, um, or almost like if you think about a novel, like is, is this sort of just like the epilogue? in a novel? Is it just explaining sort of like, well, this is why we don't see Jesus anymore, by the way? Or is it sort of like, you know, in a movie when like all the action has happened and then they're like, here's where all the characters are now, right? And it's just sort of like their lives after all the action is like, is that what's going on? And um, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it's actually quite different than that, that actually this, this ascension is almost like the climax. It's almost the crescendo it's, it's actually an extremely huge experience that it's actually a, a key to the story of what God has been doing in history 
for all time. So um, read with me Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 45, and we're going to read the two places. Luke, Luke's first book is the, the gospel titled Luke, and his second book, part two, is the book of Acts. And he ties them together by this one uh, event. This is sort of the connection between these two works um, these two literary works here. So Luke 24, and this will be on the screens or if you open your Bibles. Luke uh, 24, verses 45. Now, um, he has appeared to his disciples in this context here, what comes before it. They, at first, they think he's a ghost. This is one of the appearances. And he gives assurance that he's not. He says, look at my hands and my feet. And apparent, uh, seemingly, he's referring to the, the wounds that are still there from the crucifixion. And he says, you can see that ghosts don't have flesh and blood, as I do. <laughs> And then we read this. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in, the name, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the Great Commission. If you go to Matthew 28, that's the passage of the Great Commission. This is Luke summarizing kind of the Matthew 28. And then he says, I am going to send you, this is a key idea, what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it says, while he was blessing them, uh, he left them and was taken up into the heavens. Then they worshiped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So that's part one. Luke ends his story there. He, he ends his gospel. His second piece of literary work is the book of Acts, and he picks up right kind of at the same thing. So Acts chapter one, verses one through 11. He writes, in my former book, which is the one we just read, of Theophilus. Theophilus would have, was apparently his patron, the guy who was supporting his research and work. So apparently a wealthy enough person who could pay for Luke to do all this study and research and write this, and then he's writing it for this Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what's interesting about what Luke is saying is this book right here is about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach but through the Holy Spirit. Until the day he was, here's the phrase, taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs, we just read about that in his first volume, that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, spoke about the kingdom of God. And then he says, on one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times, dates that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, and here's the key idea that we're looking at tonight, he was taken up before their eyes in a, what's the word? 
Okay, store that word away for a minute. Okay, we're good. Like that's that's important. Luke's Luke's trying to get. This is a little hyperlink right here. <laughs> Luke wants you to think of something that we'll we'll come back to. Um, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intensely up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee. They said, "Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven." will come back in the same way you have seen him go up into heaven. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to make some connections. I want us to connect some dots and get the point of what's going on here by the, the ascension of Jesus. Like, why is that such a big deal? First, let me make a couple of just um, observations about what are some implications to Jesus' bodily ascension. The, the first one, I would say, is that Easter continues. We celebrate Easter because we do it annually. We can be um, tempted to almost think, well, Easter is about the cycle of there's spring and there's summer and there's fall and there's winter and then it comes back around. And, and, and some of the images that we use for it, you know, butterflies and springtime and warm weather and um, Easter lilies almost can communicate that idea that we're celebrating this sort of like cycle of spring coming around. And that's not what, Easter celebration is something very, very different. It's not the celebration of the cycle of, say, rebirth of, of nature. Easter happened once. It was a one-time thing. And Easter is the celebration of, of a birth of a new kind of reality. If you were here last week, remember we talked about the whole eighth day thing? Like that, put that in the back of your mind if you were there for that. That's what Easter is doing. It's celebrating this new kind of creation that we're living in. We're, we're living in new creation, and the first little crocus flower has pushed through the snow. That's Jesus. So we know it's coming, and not just in a cycle way. New creation is coming about. So implication is that Easter continues. The second implication is that the incarnation of Jesus is not over. Have you thought about that? The incarnation, meaning in flesh, humanity, him taking on humanity, the incarnation of Jesus, it's not over. Jesus took on human nature and rose and is just as human right now as he ever was. Though perfected, he has a resurrected body, but Jesus, right now on this day, he is fully or truly, we could say, truly human. He didn't leave his humanity behind, right? He ascended to the Father, but he is still fully human. He is still one of us, which is a kind of a cool thought. We'll come back around at the very end, too. I want us to think a little bit more about that idea that he is one of us and think about those implications. So, so what's going on here with Jesus' bodily, bodily ascension, and why is it so important? So let's start by this. Let's start by connecting some dots, and I think we'll, this will start to make sense. Now, when you think about titles for Jesus, if you've ever read the, well, the New Testament, what are, what are titles that are oftentimes used of Jesus? People call him that. Messiah is one. He's, he's not directly called Abba Father, but he, he teaches people about, he's uh, the son of God. That would be uh, the connection to the Abba Father, because he definitely talks a lot about that. Son of David. Son of David. People will call out to him, son of David. 
right? Rabbi. Rabbi. He's called, yeah, all these many, many titles, right, throughout. Um, the most common ones are Christ and Messiah, which that's the exact same word. Um, Mashiach is Hebrew. Christos is Greek. They're the same thing. Both of them mean the one who has been anointed or the one who has had oil poured over them. <laughs> and Christ and Messiah both have kingly overtones and priestly overtones. Reason why is in the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, it's the king and the high priest who are anointed. They have oil smeared on them. So the anointed one is this one, there's this priestly overtone, there's a kingly overtone. It's the most common title used to refer to Jesus throughout the New Testament. What's fascinating is it's a title that Jesus almost never uses of himself. Almost never. <laughs> and in fact, when, when, when there is the connection to, oh, you're the Christ or the Messiah, he either says, shh, shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> which is weird. Or he says, yep, and then changes the subject real fast, which is really curious, isn't it? Really odd. Do you know the most common title that, and it's not technically a title, but it kind of becomes one that Jesus uses for himself? Yeah, son of man, which is really weird. He uses it 81 times. Well, we have 81 times recorded in the four gospels. It's said 86 times in the New Testament, twice in Revelation, one in Hebrews, one in Acts. Otherwise, no one uses it for Jesus. Like Jesus does. None of, almost none of his followers ever use the title Son of Man. But Jesus somehow saw his identity and his mission completely wrapped up in Son of Man. That meant something unique. And I would tell you that it will help us understand by what's going on in this one particular statement in the creed here tonight. So where does, where does this come from? Scholars will tell you as you read these 81 times that Jesus uses the phrase son of man, he, he seems to clearly have in mind one particular passage where it comes, because in the Old Testament, it's used in the book of Ezekiel a lot, just God talking to Ezekiel. He just calls him son of man a bunch. But there's one time in particular, it's in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven, where there's this figure, and it's really weird. Um, Jewish scholars who have, who have studied this for, for, for centuries who have wondered, like, who is this guy? Because it's a really weird person, and, and he's the son of man. And again, son of man just means human, but here it's almost used like a, quasi-title, it's not an official title, it's not like president or prime minister or senator or anything like that, but it's, it's really interesting. So let's go to Daniel chapter seven. I want you to see something unique that'll I think help us see better what Jesus is saying these 81 times constantly. And, and uh, go back and read just one of the gospels, and it's almost like once you see it, you can't not see it anymore. Like, Jesus is using this term constantly. Like, he's almost every conversation he has, he puts that in there. So Daniel chapter 7, let me give you a little bit of context. If, if you're not familiar with the book of, of Daniel, Daniel is a, a descendant of David. The kingdom has been destroyed, divided, um, 
and uh, the king of Babylon has come in and, and taken out the best of the best from Jerusalem and taken them back to Babylon. And we're told that he takes some of the, the uh, seed of the king of, of the Davidic line. So Daniel and his friends, they're, they're descendants from David. And he takes kind of the, the cream of the crop, best of the best, takes them to Babylon and they puts them through a couple years of education, learning their culture and language and all these sorts of Things and the book of Daniel is is showing how these these faithful seeds of David live in a culture which is um, tr- constantly trying to get them to compromise and how is it that, that they can be faithful to God and yet also good citizens and living in this culture and uh, what's unique about Daniel is um, he he is able by the power of God to interpret a number of dreams that the king has. And so there's a series of, the king has a dream, and he's able to interpret it, and then another dream. And the dreams are always about evil power structures that are going to crush people, but that God is, is, is absolutely set on destroying those evil power structures and establishing his kingdom. That's what all the dreams are about. And you get to the middle point of the book, and all of a sudden, Daniel has a dream because he's been the interpreter the whole time, all of a sudden he has a dream and he's not sure exactly what's going on. And so in Daniel chapter seven, I'll read the first part of it and then we'll have kind of the other part here on, on the screen. So in the dream, Daniel sees these four like beast-like creatures that are like mutant beasts and they're coming out of the water and they're, they're, they're crushing humanity. They're just stomping on them and crushing humanity. And, and then in the middle of this going on, uh, verse 9, this won't be on the screen, so let me go back. Verse 9, he says, As I looked, this is, um, thrones were set in place. Now, this is a weird thing. So he's, he's looking up into heaven, and he, he's seeing God's throne room. And right away, there's something weird here. It's plural. Doesn't, isn't there one God? Yeah, but there are thrones. Okay, that, that's, that's interesting. Uh, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Ancient of Days is a way to refer to the God of the Israelites. So he took a throne, but that means there's still an empty throne. Um, his clothing was white as snow. Uh, the hair on his head was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels, so this is a chariot throne, Okay, it's, like a, it's like a mobile throne. We're ablaze. A river was flowing, oh, sorry, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. This is a picture of judgment. Thousands upon thousands attended him, his court. 10,000 uh, times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. So this is a courtroom picture now. The books were opened. And then he's, uh, there's this idea of these, these nations. He, he sort of neuters these, these evil power structures and nations. And then Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, this will be up on the screens. We read this. In my vision, Daniel says, at night, he's asleep, I, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, okay? Uh, this is one of the ones who had been crushed by the beasts. But one of these ones who had been crushed a son of man, I saw him coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is very, very weird. Three times, God is, is, is called the cloud rider in, in the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> that, that, that God, the ancient of days, Yahweh, comes on the cloud. You never have a human 
referred to in this way. Um, now, notice where he's going. Is he descending or ascending? Which one? On the clouds. Is he going up or down on the clouds? He's going up. Um, we see him, he approached the Ancient of Days. Where's the Ancient of Days? He's up. So the Son of Man who was crushed down here is ascending on a cloud. It's not coming down on a cloud. It's going up on a cloud to the Ancient of Days. So he approaches the Ancient of Days. He's led into his presence. And look what he's given. Authority, glory, sovereign power. Remember the empty throne? Do you see what it's saying? He's sitting down in one of the thrones that, that wasn't taken by the Ancient of Days. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Wait a minute, you don't worship creatures, you don't worship humans. Uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What's really fascinating and again, I would like, encourage you to go back, read through this, think about it, make, you know, see, see what's there. But especially as you're, reading, as you're reading the Gospels, Jesus saw his identity, he saw his mission, he saw his call, he saw, he saw himself, his primary identity, in Daniel chapter 7. Like That's what influenced his self-identity as he engages with people. And so, as, as kind of some examples, when Jesus is questioned, remember when he's walking through a field at one point, it's on the Sabbath, and he takes some heads of wheat, and kind of, he and his disciples, they crush him, crush them and eat, and those who see, say, oh, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath, that's, that's working on the Sabbath. And he says um, in Matthew 12, 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I can define it the way I want. When he's talking about his authority, when speaking about his purpose on earth, Matthew 12, 40, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When talking about, about serving and the kind of example that he is setting and the life that he is calling his apprentices to, in Matthew 12, 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood his identity primarily around the Son of Man as described in Daniel chapter 7. Listen to Luke 18, 31. Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Now, in a second, I want to read what, what is leading to this climax moment. You remember where Jesus has been arrested and he's standing before the high priest. He's standing before another anointed one, another Mashiach. He's the high priest. He's, he's, he's been anointed too. And, and, and there's this power play here. And Jesus has been making comments about the temple that, that, that he is going to bring judgment on the temple itself because it is not fulfilling its purpose, something that God did in the Hebrew scriptures. And so there's this, but the, the high priest, this, this is his power base. And so there's this sort of confrontation of, of, of power there. Before we read that, though, let me, to help you better understand what Jesus says and why it's so radical, when he's standing in front of this other anointed one, the high priest, 
Um, Psalm 110, another piece that influenced Jesus' self-understanding. This is a Psalm of David. And David writes this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. For your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And there's a big question here. Well, who's David talking about? The Lord said, my, he actually says, Yahweh said to my Adonai. Adonai just means Lord. So he said, God, the ancient of days, said to my Lord. And so people are like, what do you mean Lord? Because if, if it's one of David's descendants, that, he wouldn't be David's Lord. So there's this big question as to who exactly he's referring to. Now let's put all of that together. And let's go into this, this moment where Jesus is standing before the other anointed one, the high priest, and it all comes down. This is right before Jesus is going to be delivered to Pilate. We read this. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. Mark 14, verse 60. It'll be up on the screens. Then the Mashiach, the Christ, in a sense, he's one of the anointed ones. He's the only one there. There's no king. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? Because he's been accused of all this stuff. You're doing this, you're claiming that, you're claiming that you're gonna destroy the temple. What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the anointed one? (laughs) The anointed one asked him, are you the anointed one, the son of the blessed one? Verse 62, he says, I am. Now, that's not blasphemy. He's talking to an anointed one. He's saying, are you the king? Are you the Messiah? There were, there were about 12 would-be messiahs <clears throat> within 50 years of Jesus on either side of him who, who made attempted messianic movements. No one thought they were claiming to be God. Are you with me on that? It's just, you're just the king. You're claiming to be a descendant of, of David. That won't get him killed. That's not blasphemy. What is then? Look what comes next. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. That's Psalm 110 that we just read, where David says, The Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, shared authority. (laughs) And coming on the clouds of heaven. What's that? It's Daniel 7, right? Now again, coming on the clouds, it's it's not going down. It's ascending up to sit on a throne that is empty (laughs) and have shared power and authority with the ancient of days. The high priest to this tore his clothes because that's a sign of the worst possible thing that could have possibly ever been said, I just heard with my ears. And so I rend my clothes. Um, Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Do you see it? Are you seeing this? Like what Jesus is saying, the fact that he used consistently son of man 81 times, he's he's always having that. He's making a claim about himself. He's making a claim about who he is and what he is accomplishing in his life. So when I see Jesus, his ascension in Luke and Acts, this is not just an alien abduction. This is not just describing, oh, that's kind of a really cool way that he left. (laughs) It's not a postscript. That's not what's going on here. There's a claim that this is Jesus's enthronement. When Jesus, when I say he ascended to the Father and he sits at the right hand, I'm I'm declaring Jesus is enthroned, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, as patakrator, 
almighty over the entire universe. He, 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 he rules. It's interesting, if you ever go to... Um, uh, if you ever go to an Eastern Orthodox or a Greek Orthodox church, they always have in the center of the church, there's an icon of Jesus, and it says, Patakrator. He's all-powerful. He's ruling everything. This is the claim about who this Jesus is. So Jesus is enthroned. He's coming on the clouds up to the Ancient of Days, and he's given all authority. See, this is important because it's, it's only because Jesus is where he is now, seated there, that no claim, if you're a follower of Jesus, that no claim of your guilt of sin and rebellion can be charged against you. Romans 8.34 says this, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died... More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's why no claim of condemnation can be levied against us. It's only because Jesus is where he is right now that you can have your mind renewed, your, your, your life changed, and you have a guarantee that you will reach your glorified self, your perfected self. Listen to... Colossians 3.3 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ Set your heart on things above Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God Are you seeing the connection between all of these things here? Set your mind on things above Not on earthly things For you died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God When Christ who is your life appears you also will appear with him in glory. And this is the most important one, I would suggest. It's only because Jesus is where he is right now that, you, that he can give us the secret to Christian discipleship. The secret. Meaning, how, gosh, I really want to follow Jesus. Is there a secret sauce? How do I do it? Yes, there is. There is a secret, and here it is. Acts 2.33, we read, Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. See, the secret to living a life of Christian discipleship is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, William Temple, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, talking about the whole concept of following Jesus, he, he had this great kind of illustration. He said, uh, it's no good to give me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and tell me to write a play like that only Shakespeare can write. And he says, similarly, it's no good to give me a life like the life of Jesus and tell me to live a life like that only Jesus could do and I can't. But then he said, made an observation, he said, but... If, if the genius of Shakespeare could actually come and live inside me, I could write plays like Shakespeare. Similarly, if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, I could live a life like that. But that's only because he ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
earlier on, I said I want to talk about some of the, like I want to talk a little bit more about an implication to Jesus' bodily resurrection. And, and we talked about this idea that the incarnation isn't over, right? He didn't leave his humanity here. He is, he is just as human now as he ever was. See, here's, here's the key thing. One of us, one of our kind, son of man means human, one of our kind is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. One of our kind, because he's there, has given us admission into the very heart of the Trinity. Have you ever thought about that? One, one theologian, John Gresham, says this, this doesn't mean that human beings are absorbed into the transcendent divine essence, but rather that in Jesus, we are invited to become members of the divine fellowship, sharing in the divine energy that is exchanged between Father and Son and Holy Spirit in an eternal circulation of divine life. The Apostle Peter, in his second letter, he says this, Second Peter 1, he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything for pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promise. What's that? Here it is. So that by them you may become partakers in the divine nature. Now he's not saying we're becoming little mini gods, but I'm being given a new kind of life, a life force that I just don't have on my, on my own. And have you thought about this fact? One of us, one of our kind, he's unique, but he's still one of us, is a part of the Trinity. And he's promised, I'm inviting you into the fellowship. Not, not like the fellowship of the rings, but the fellowship of the Trinity you're gonna be invited in to the closest kind of relationship, but that's only happened because I took on human nature. I bridged the gap between the transcendent infinite and the finite limited, you and I, and so now we are invited in. And this is the amazing thing, is that the one, the one who shed his blood, who became truly human, whose body was broken, for us on the cross, and, and his blood was shed, that same one now sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so as we celebrate communion this week, I want us to, to in your own way, as you come get it, we're gonna say some words, stand in awe. And if you're able to, at your seat or somewhere else, I want you to do that. Stand in awe that this one here, this, the Son of Man, taking on human flesh, is the God-man. He's one of us. And so we stand in awe of what he has done. And this is what allows us to be part of the fellowship with the Trinity. We enter into his life for us.